Zane texted me late last night, and he said the Lord instructed him to read 1 Peter 1, and he hadn't read it in a while, couldn't remember what it was until he went and saw why the Lord told him to read it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, so that we might obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. Us who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice greatly, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you came to you and made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or what time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that were to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look into. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely and solely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Messiah himself. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope would rest in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but of imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's just pray and ask God to guide us in his word tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Praise your name, God. Thank you for your word that is forever. Thank you for your word that searches and knows our hearts. Thank you for your word that sets us free. Thank you for your word that lights our path out of darkness and into light. Thank you for your word that gives us rebirth. 
in you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you had to say, what would you say was the repeated theme through that passage that we just read? Over and over and over, he contrasts two things. What are those two things? Thank you, Brother Steve. Perishable and imperishable. Temporal and eternal. And he concludes the whole thing by saying, all flesh is as grass. Now is grass perishable or imperishable? And all their glory like the flower of the field. And in case we forgot, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. You see, there's something inside of all of us. We long for the permanent. We thirst for the eternal. We don't like to feel that the rug has been pulled out from under our feet. We don't like to sense that we're on sinking sand heading toward an abyss beneath. But that is the condition of this world under judgment. Everything about it is temporal. It is not eternal. And if we set our mind on things below, on earthly things, then we are going to live a life of one endless disappointment after another. And in the end, we're going to conclude our sojourn on earth in despair. Because in the end, all flesh is as grass. Every single person in this room and on the face of this earth is going to die. Solomon said there is no discharge from this war. The curse is upon us. The judgment of sin, the sin that we hold down on ourselves. It is upon us and there is no escaping that battle. Now we don't like to expedite it. We don't like to see it hurried in its inevitable course. But we are deceiving ourselves if we think we can avoid it. It may come slow or it may come spry. But it's going to come. We're going to face the end of all flesh. Specifically, our own flesh. And either there is going to be something begotten inside of us that is eternal, that is forever. And we can start shifting all of our Hopes, confidence, expectations, satisfactions from the temporal into that thing that is eternal. Or we're going to see our life's work and the dreams that carried us go down in the sinking ship of this temporal flesh. Amen? Think about somebody who is in a town off the coast of Florida and a hurricane has blown in. And they stayed too long. They didn't evacuate on time, but water is rising everywhere. And all of a sudden there's a rap at the door and they open it and someone is there with a boat. And they say, get on this boat got room for you and whoever is in your house. That person immediately, they have a choice. They face a choice. Either I'm going to cling to this house because I believe it's forever and the water ain't going to touch it. Are you with me? Or I'm going to have to make a shift and I'm going to have to distance myself from this house. What it means to me and I'm going to have to start 
shifting my place of confidence to something completely different. Amen? And they're looking around them and they're taking the things that matter and they're putting them on the boat. Put it on the boat. This house isn't going to last. Amen? The things that they want to live with, they want to keep. The things they don't want to go down, put them on the boat because it's not going to last in this house. And that's what Christians have to do too. At some point in your life, you're going to look out the window. Whether you hear an air raid siren or not, you're going to look out the window and your soul is going to warn you that the waters are rising. And you're going to look around you to, just to, to ground just a little lower, just a few years younger than you, and you're going to see the houses have already been inundated. And the walls are caving in and the roof is collapsing. Because this is what has been happening from the beginning of time. When God made man, he made him to live forever. Amen? He made him to be like him, to live forever. There was no death in this world. Not a plant, not a bird, not an animal, not a creature, nothing. There was no death. But through sin, we invited different powers into the world that God had trusted to our care. Through sin, we invited the powers of disintegration, the power of death. In the day that you eat of it, dying, you will die. The process will begin as soon as you change the way you relate to God and you begin to pursue power and godhood through a grasping ambition of pride instead of through emulation, imitation, like a son becoming like his father. In the day that you eat of it dying, you will die. And so the houses are collapsing all around. And God is just asking you, can you wake up? Can you look out your window and recognize reality? And if you can, do you have the courage to hear him stand at the door and knock? And say, tis the old ship of Zion. Leave these things that have been created by earth for earth and come into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And you look around you in your house and you say, put my baby on the boat. Put my son on the boat. Put the things that matter. Get me and my relationships on the boat. We got to get out of here. The boat isn't what you would have picked, picked for yourself. It's not a castle on a rock. Mm -mm. It's not a luxury liner. It's not. We're not making any pretenses about that. The boat is a lifeboat. It's a rescue vessel. Sometimes we're a bit crowded and jostled. But we're sailing to greener shores, to another country. And we're looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And if we're mindful of the country from which we are departing, then we're going to have many opportunities to step out into the streets, wade out into the streets, up to our waist, and try to make it in this world. But if we remember the truth of what this world is coming to, and the end of all flesh, then we're going to say, God, just keep us on the boat. Amen. All that really matters in the end is that we make this voyage intact that we get to the other shore, amen, and we hear you say, come, in, come on in to your eternal rest. That's really all that matters. Christian singers talk about finding their place in this world. My place in this world, my place in this world. 
Oh, you just wish they'd stop trying to find their place in this world and start trying to find their place in the kingdom that is not of this world. Jesus stood before Pilate who epitomized the man who had found his place in this world. He stood before Pilate and without fear he told him, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be taking up swords to fight. But my kingdom is from another place. It's a vessel passing through this world. But it's a vessel from heaven. It's the kingdom of God. It's the church of the firstborn. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. My place in this world. I don't want my son to find his place in this world. Because the world and all the works of it, Peter said just a few chapters later, is going to be burned with unquenchable fire. 75% of Americans tonight say they're more afraid than they've ever been because analysts say we are closer to nuclear holocaust than we have ever been, including during the Cold War. A megalomaniac, a man who ought to be institutionalized for his mental illnesses, is running a country over there in North Korea. And they have the atom bomb in droves, and they have missiles that can reach the U.S. now to carry those bombs. They're making explicit threats, bombing Guam, other places, other U.S. territories. The saber-rattling is getting awfully dangerous. We know that the time is coming and it's not going to be water, even excusing my analogy tonight, it's going to be fire next time. And the fire is not going to be what God throws on the people. It's going to be what the people pull down from heaven upon themselves. This next week is an unprecedented thing. There's going to be an eclipse, my dad was telling me. All across the middle of the United States. A solar eclipse like never before. Where it's going to become dark in the middle of the day. What does that mean? Does that mean that America, the Lord says that there will be signs in the heaven before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What does that mean? Does it mean America is being eclipsed? Deuteronomy 28, 28 says, in the curses to the disobedient, they shall stumble at noonday. They shall be blind when it is light. And that is where the church is at because they have invested all of their substance not in the kingdom that has foundations, not in the kingdom that cannot be shaken, but they have invested themselves in the kingdoms of this world. They have made a name for themselves in the kingdoms of this world. All it's going to take is a little bit of shaking. And it's all going to come down. And if you made him to be a success in this world, if you cultivated your son, your daughter, to be a success in this world, then you cultivated them for failure. I speak to those who did so having known a better way, not those who did so in ignorance. How dare you cultivate him to be a success in this world? This world is not our home. We're looking for a different country. You say, well, how's your other country working for you? I hear that there's a lot of hurting in promised land. Oh yeah, there definitely is a lot of hurting in the promised land. I hear that somebody died. I hear that somebody suffered. I hear that the innocent are hurting. Does God not love us? Does God not hear us? Can God not heal us? How's your promised land working for you? 
Well, to be perfectly honest, I never see any promise in the Bible that says, in this world we will not have troubles. Do you? My Bible says, in this world you will have many troubles, many tribulations. But then I hear Jesus say, but fear not, because I have overcome the world. I hear my Bible say, it is through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. I get excited about the entrance, not about the tribulations. Amen? I don't hear my Bible say that God has redeemed our bodies from the curse of death. I don't see that. That's not what I, I, I'm reading here. But maybe I'm missing something. I hear the Lord say that He has redeemed us in the inner man. That He's given us a new heart, a new spirit, a new mind. But I hear Him say, outwardly, we're fading away. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. I hear him say, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies. Do you hear the saints groaning? That's okay. At least they're not getting comfortable in this world that is not our home. Do you hear the saints hurting? Well, they just might be entering the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Do you hear the saints pleading and praying? While a memorial is being built up. Amen. And God is waiting for our obedience to become complete. Then he's going to come and he's going to put an end to all this strife, to all this opposition, to all this death and oppression. Amen. Does the Lord not hear the groaning of his people? I have heard the groaning of my people, Moses. Go down to Egypt. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But there arose a man like unto Moses. He also came at a Passover time. And Paul said he was our Passover. Amen. And Paul said that as they were baptized into Moses in the cloud, so we are baptized into Christ. And Christ also came and he he looked at death. He looked at the Pharaoh of this whole cosmic, the cosmic Pharaoh of this whole universe who had held us in bondage all our lifetime and he said, let my people go. Let them go. Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. You gave them a free will, God, and they've submitted themselves to me according to their own free will. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Remember that? You gave them this free will. Now you can't force them to do something different. God looked at him. He said, I've got to disarm you somehow, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was holding a spear to the side of God's people. The threat of death. Don't make a break. Don't run for it. Don't do God's will. Don't live for love. Save your own skin. Skin for skin. Remember that? He was holding the spear to the side of God's people. Don't you do it. You live for self now. Don't you forget it. Now, who's number one? You live for self. He held us in bondage all our lifetime through the fear of death. There's that spear right up against our side. When we would lay down our lives in love, and when love in turn would liberate us from all the bonds of fear, don't you do it. Don't you do it. You could lose something. Don't take the risk. 
Don't invest yourself. And Jesus looked at him and he said, I got to get that spear out of Pharaoh's hand. I'm speaking of the cosmic Pharaoh, remember? I got to get that weapon out of his hand. I got to disarm him somehow. So what did he do? He came in and he strong-armed him, didn't he? Did some karate, got it out of his hand. Is that what he did? What did he do? How did he disarm principalities and powers? Colossians 2. Go look at it. How did he disarm principalities and powers? First of all, what was the arms that they, wore, that they bore? The arms of the fear of death, of intimidation, right? Of a threat that made us fearful and a fear that made us captive. Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your heart, your flesh, Christ made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it away, having nailed it to the cross. I see a nice minivan out there. She... Uh, some more minivans over there, SUV there, another one out there. I don't know who those belong to, but I can tell you one thing, they don't belong to me. What would happen if I just walked out there to that minivan and opened it up and started loading in my luggage, put a luggage rack on and putting the tent in, throwing an ice chest in the back and somebody comes out and says, what are you doing with my van? And I said, oh no, this is mine, this is mine. What are you talking about? That's, that's my van. No, no, it's mine. What do they do? They say, no, 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 no. The insurance says right here, it's mine. Oh, no, that, you just, you got that insurance card, but this is my van. Well, if it come down to it, they're going to pull out the title, aren't they? They're going to say, right here, here's a certificate, a decree that declares this van is mine. By an authority bigger than both of you and me. And if you don't give me back my van, I'm going to give them a ring. Oh, okay, all right, it's your van. I see it now. Okay, but that's how it was with us. That's how it was with us. Our sins had given controlling power. We had submitted ourselves to the power of evil so that he had a rightful claim over us. Do you understand? It's almost as if the van could choose what its owner would be. And that's what we did. We chose to subject ourselves to the wrong power. To whomever you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one's possessive slave whom you obey. You belong to them. Amen? So the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. God comes and he says, I want my people back. And Pharaoh says, they're my slaves. They could have left a long time ago to the promised land, but they are my slaves now. And God looks at us and he says, they can't just decide to stop sinning. They don't have the power. I could tell them stop sinning, but they can't. Because the law is powerless to make any man righteous. Do you understand? So God says, I gotta get him out of the control of the devil. I gotta disarm his threat of death and make them trust me and believe me, put all their confidence in me. And then if they're if they'll start believing with a new kind of belief, we call it faith, then through the open door of that faith, I'll pour my spirit into them. I'll change them from the inside out. They'll have the power that they so conspicuously lack. But Satan had the title deed. 
Satan had the rightful claim. Our sins granted him rightful claim. So Jesus had to come and pay the price for all the vans that had ever been built. And rather, for all the people that had ever been born. Past, present, and future. He had to pay the debt. The debt to justice that the devil was using to hold us in bondage. Over all of us, Satan had rightful claim, but over Christ he had none. So when Jesus died on the cross, it says that he nailed the decrees against us to the cross. Now what did they actually nail to the cross? They nailed his hands and feet to the cross. But in doing that, they did something that was cataclysmically unjust. They overreached. They went outside the power that had been given to them. God gave us a free will and we submitted ourselves through sin to the powers of evil. But Jesus had not submitted himself to the powers of evil. Behold, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. Because he was without sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers was silent, so he opened not his mouth. So with every action of abuse, and violence against Jesus, it would have been as if the snake had come in and killed Adam and Eve without ever getting them to bite the apple. That wouldn't have worked, would it? The only way that the snake could take dominion over Adam and Eve was to entice them to bite the apple, to use their free will to subject themselves to his domination and thereby to be addicted to the heroin of sin and his domination. He's the drug lord. He gets you hooked with some free stuff, and then you can't rip yourself away. You don't have the power anymore. And Jesus came to give us a place where we could be separated from it, to give us a power that could empower us to overcome it, and to give us a freedom from the certificates of justice that bound us to his ownership. Do you understand? So that when he comes out and he says, what are you doing with my car? Jesus says, oh no. No, no, no. I already made a deal with justice. I paid for this car with my own blood. Not with perishable things, but with imperishable things, with the blood of Christ himself. And so he says that he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he disarmed rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him at the cross. Now, how did he make a public spectacle? Do you know what a public spectacle is? A laughing stock. It was a big joke. They thought that they had once and for all silenced the opposition of God in the world. They thought they had nailed it to the cross. There was a spirit of triumph as they saw him breathe his last. Finally it's over, they say. in doing this unjust deed, they were creating a space on earth where they had no power any longer. Do you understand? They had broken the law of the universe, the justice of God. They had spilt blood that they had no right to touch. Amen? 
And where that blood falls, where that blood covers, there is a place where they have no hold. Are you with me still? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So ironically, he disarmed them by letting them pierce him. And by showing us that their spear did not have to control us. That the threat of death was not what we'd always thought. That we should not fear him who can kill the body and after that do no more. That we should fear, love, honor, obey, and respect him who has the power of body and soul grant us entrance into heaven or hell. Do you understand? So the disarming, okay, let me, let me give this to you in one more analogy. How many of you have a legitimate fear of knives and guns? Better raise this hand. <laughs> How many of you? We all should and do, don't we? Especially after some experiences with them. We all do, don't we? Huh? Now, what would you say if you saw someone stabbed and fell dead at your feet and somebody walked in and said, oh, no big deal, and took them by the hand and raised them up? The next time someone came in and said, and put a knife to your throat and said, you better do what I say or this is going to be the last thing you don't do. Your attitude toward the knife would have changed. Do you understand how? Because you saw that the knife was not a permanent death. That it could be healed. It could be taken away. Do you understand? Now how much more courage would you have to face the knives and weapons of the evil one. If you believed with that simplicity that Christ had totally conquered and overcome death. And whether it was in the moment or not, he had defeated death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you understand? How is it that a multitude of thousands upon ten thousands of Christians had the courage to start what would become the greatest movement in human history, both in influence and impact, as well as size? What empowered this multitude of thousands of Christians spread to the, all the corners of the earth. What empowered them to bravely stand up against the Roman Empire? Against death itself? To be marched into the Colosseums and slain with no sword in their hand or gored to death with wild beasts, mauled to death with lions. Even the unbelieving secular Romans marveled. Where do they get this courage? It is the difference between the temporal and the eternal. The momentary light afflictions of the present and the glory that is to be revealed. He disarmed them by submitting to them and showing us what happened on the other side. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 3. Is God's contest with the principalities and powers in heavenly places, is it over yet? We know that Jesus was the captain of our salvation. What does the captain do? He leads, right? Literally the pilgrim or the forerunner. Amen. In Hebrew, the, the halutzim. So if he was the captain, did he finish the battle? 
Did Jesus bear his cross alone and let the rest go free? No, there's a cross for all of us, and there's one for you and me. That's a verse that they don't often sing, but the writer of Amazing Grace did pen when he wrote the song. Verse 8, chapter 3 of Ephesians. Listen carefully. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light something's in the dark, something's hidden, something's unknown, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, because of this, therefore I ask you not to lose heart reading at my tribulations on your behalf for they are for your glory for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his na its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through faith in the spirit in the innermost man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. The work and the love of Christ surpasses our capacity to understand at times. It is a joy inexpressible. We can't describe it. It doesn't make sense to the natural mind. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, not to him who is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we could ask, think, or imagine, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Three things I want to point out to you. One, the work of disarming principalities and powers. The warfare in heavenly places is not over yet. And the church is participating in that work. And Paul implies that it is his suffering that is furthering that work. Now I ask you, how specifically does suffering in the right attitude and the right spirit, how does it disarm principalities and powers? How does it bring to light the manifold wisdom of God in heavenly places? The devil's premise is simple. It is this, skin for skin. He believes that people can be controlled by what is pleasing to the eye and pleasant to the taste. And God believes that people were made in His image. And therefore, they have a capacity for love that the devil and the angels desire to look into, but they cannot. That there is something in the inner man that the devil cannot touch with his spear. And the devil says, watch this. Skin for skin, take away the protections to his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And God says, I don't think so. I'm willing to risk my integrity, says God. I'm willing to risk my reputation on the integrity this man's loyalty and love toward me. Suffering 
is not shooting yourself in the finger. Suffering is when the devil gets his worst, most lethal weapons. And the Lord says, these two or this one will disarm that weapon. Just watch and see. And he brings it against God's saints. And they are beaten but not destroyed. Amen. They are hard-pressed on every side. But they're not in despair. They have something in the inner man that is stronger than anything that can be done to the flesh. Because their hopes are in the eternal. Luke 22, what did he say to Simon? Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. How did Satan sift Simon like wheat? By making Simon see his best friend, the only innocent man on earth, suffer unjustly. He knew Simon, with his childish perspective, would say, God's not in control. How could this be his will? This is clearly the evil one. And it was. But God was outwitting Satan at his own game. The sifting is in the suffering that we see by those whom we love. And he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. What is the antidote to, to this sifting? But I have prayed for you. What is it? That your faith would not fail. Don't you know that's what Jesus was feeling? That's what God was feeling about Job? I have prayed for you. That's what Jesus feels about every one of us. The sifting is ultimately to destroy the works of the devil. That's the purpose of it. It is not a wound suffered for no cause. It is a wound suffered on the battlefield. The cosmic battlefield. The only battlefield that really matters in the end. Because I read that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Amen? You say, well, this is clearly a flesh and blood problem but it has cosmic significance. It has spiritual significance. Amen? If we fight as one who beats the air, if we suffer for no reason, how hard that suffering is to bear. And it is still hard. But if we suffer as one embroiled in a war, where God is on one side contending for his people's hearts and truth and love and the enemy is on the other side seducing people by skin for skin manipulation. If we know that the things we suffer are battlefields in this cosmic war, can we not take some pride in the scars that we have suffered in gaining great territory for the kingdom of love and God. Can we not say, I took love an inch further. I took faith a mile further. I was tasked with the same responsibility that patient Job was asked to assume. God believed in me. Maybe my name was mentioned in heaven last night. Maybe God pinned his glory on my integrity. I want you to see that it's an honor. I want you to see that in this world it's inevitable. But for Christians, it is not suffering in vain. 
It is suffering by way of disarming the one who makes us suffer. By liberating our brothers and sisters and ourselves from his power. You remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil departed saying that he would return at a more opportune time. And you remember the next time Jesus spoke of temptation? Do you remember where it was? It was right after he told Peter that Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. What did he say? Pray, lest you enter into temptation. What was temptation? Skin for skin. Provoke and reaction. Slap and slap back. Insult for insult. Sword for sword. Temptation was when the devil was going to try to provoke Peter to respond in the flesh. And I ask you, did Peter enter into temptation? Yes, because he slept through his times when he should be praying. Did Jesus enter into temptation? When they struck him on the cheek? When they spat upon him? Did he strike them back? When they accused him, did he say, that is not true? I don't know where you heard that, but let me tell you what really happened. Did he? Temptation is when the devil brings a negative stimuli and he predicts our volatile response. And when he can predict it so exactly as he did with Peter, he keeps us under his power. What happened to Peter right after he entered into temptation? He denied the Lord. That was the end of his entering. And then what happened? He was condemned. He was gutted spiritually. His faith was just a vacuous hole of unbelief. And he wept bitterly. That's where the devil wants us. He wants us condemned. He wants us condemned because that's where we're powerless. He wants our faith to fail because he knows that faith is the victory that overcomes the world that he is the God and ruler of. But if we can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. This faith runs deeper than my skin. God, I know you didn't send this affliction, but you're believing in me to win another victory for the kingdom. So come what may, Lord, I'm coming through. I don't care what the rest of the world decides to do. I don't care what the devil's plans are. Being reviled, we will not revile in return. Being slandered, we will not slander in kind. Being hated, we will not learn to hate. We will overcome the responses the devil thinks he can predict from us. And in so doing, we will not enter into temptation. We will tell him he's not powerful. You can hurt the body. You can't touch my soul. You can put these hands in chains, these feet in fetters. You can whip me. You can kill me. You can take everything from me. My body may be covered with blisters and sores. Everyone may be telling me this is because I sinned or blew it. Others may be saying it's because God's unfair or unjust. But I know the truth that the world is unfair and unjust because of the deeds of man. And I am a partaker in man's sin. I am involved in mankind. Amen? But I also know that this world is not my home. 
and I see a kingdom drawing near that is permanent, that is forever in heaven. And I am putting all my hopes. I'm storing up treasure in heaven. That's where my hopes are. That's where my dreams are. That's where my faith is. God, just help me get to that eternal home. Amen? And if it costs me everything, I'm ready, I'm ready to do it. He will not heap on me more than I can bear. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to every man. But for every temptation, there is a way of escape. And what is the way of escape? It is the way of trust. It is the way of humility that trusts God, that doesn't panic. Peter panicked. Everyone else panicked also. They fled from the garden. At least Peter followed as far as Caiaphas' house. But the devil didn't mind. He knew that Peter didn't have what it took. But Jesus knows you do have what it takes. Not in ourselves, but by his grace. You say, God, this thorn... Before you sent it to me, I could have told you for sure I could not bear it. And the Lord says, I know. I know how it works. My power was not perfect before the weakness. My power was made perfect through the weakness. So it comes to us. But with it, God is slipping his weapons. He's standing behind us saying, Here's a little water of my spirit. Drink, soldier. It's okay. Here's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Why don't you slash through those lies a little bit? Oh, I can see him starting to get to your heart. He's getting to your emotions. He's hurting you. Why don't you hold up the shield of faith against the fiery darts of the devil? Don't believe all that junk. Now, come on, come on. He's not going to hit your head. He's not going to kill you. That'd be a fatal wound. And I've got my helmet of salvation on you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And your feet, you've still got the shoes on, the preparation of the gospel of peace, that yes, there may come death and there may come burial, but there's also going to come resurrection. Just keep on, soldier. I'm standing right here with you. Amen. Put on the breastplate. Put on the belt. Amen. You can do it. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's worship God for making us conquerors, for making us soldiers, for trusting us to win these battles for his kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. His grace is sufficient in our weakness. Amen. It's not abundant. It's not excessive. It's sufficient. Peter was sleeping and he entered into temptation. Jesus was praying and angels came and ministered to him. As they want to minister to us, the heirs of salvation. Amen. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon 